Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. In the spring of 1169, Shirku was euphoric. The Kurdish warrior was now the most powerful man in the wealthiest country in the Middle East. He celebrated with a great feast. As always on such occasions, he overate mightily, gorging himself on his favorite dishes of richly sauced meats. This time, though, he went too far. Agonizing indigestion overcame him. On March 22nd, Shirku died. Shirku's gifted nephew, Saladin, moved swiftly to succeed him. He had won over his uncle's inner circle of supporters, the Kurdish and Turkic commanders of his army, and the civil servants who ran the Egyptian state. Then Saladin had the Fatimid Caliph appoint him vizier. At the time of his ascent to power, Saladin was about 30 years old. He had grown up as a typical Muslim nobleman in the court of Nur al-Din in Damascus. During the duel for Egypt, he began to display considerable military and administrative acumen. He became one of his uncle's most trusted commanders. During Shirku's brief tenure as vizier, Saladin ran the day-to-day government of Egypt. His most outstanding quality was his generosity. He lavished money and gifts on those willing to support him in the process binding them closer to him. Saladin immediately faced two serious challenges to his grip on Egypt. The first challenge was an uprising in Cairo by the black African infantry of the Fatimid army. The most loyal adherents of the Shiite caliphs, the Africans opposed the ascendancy of the Sunni Turks. Saladin ruthlessly crushed their revolt. He first sent his cavalry to attack the Africans' families. Then, when the black infantrymen arrived to protect their wives and children, Saladin slaughtered them all. This savage episode secured Saladin's military supremacy within Egypt. But the second, even more serious challenge came from outside the country. In October 1169, King Amalric of Jerusalem launched his last invasion of Egypt. This time, the field army of Jerusalem was joined by a massive Byzantine armada of 200 ships. The combined forces laid siege to the city of Damietta in the eastern reaches of the Nile Delta by land and sea. Saladin conducted a tenacious and effective defense. After 50 days of tough fighting, the determination of the Christian coalition crumbled. Amalric and the Byzantines agreed to withdraw in exchange for tribute payments from Saladin. Gifts and money were duly sent from Egypt to the emperor of Byzantium in Constantinople. But the repulse of such powerful Christian forces established Saladin as a great captain and an able ruler. Having seen off these challenges, Saladin felt able to deal with the Fatimid Caliphate. For two years, he had kept the Shiite Caliph in office. Pressure from both Nur al-Din and the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, as well as his own desire to burnish his credentials as a Sunni leader, prompted Saladin to act. Taking advantage of the fortuitous death of the incumbent caliph in September 1171, Saladin abolished the Fatimid Caliphate and placed Egypt under the nominal suzerainty of the Abbasids of Baghdad. Saladin had enjoyed a remarkable rise to power, but now he had to face Nur al-Din. From the beginning of the duel for Egypt, 
the great Zengid warlord had kept a suspicious eye on his Kurdish vassals. When Shirku had gone on his third and decisive expedition to Egypt, Nur al-Din had saddled him with several of his most loyal Turkic emirs. The suspicion was subsequently transferred to Saladin. For his part, Saladin appeared to have decided early on to create his own independent Ayyubid state. Yet he calculated that he could not openly break with Nur al-Din too soon. Saladin therefore continued to claim that he remained a loyal vassal of the Zengid, who was simply governing Egypt on his behalf. Tensions between Saladin and Nur al-Din escalated over the Crusader states. Nur al-Din expected his vassal in Cairo to join him in his attacks on the Christians. A coordinated effort from Egypt and Syria would have put Jerusalem in the jaws of a vice. Yet Saladin feared that if Nur al-Din were ever to crush the Franks, the Zengid warlord would attack him next. He therefore prevaricated whenever Nur al-Din ordered him to attack the kingdom of Jerusalem. The most notorious incident occurred in the autumn of 1171, when the Zengid planned to besiege the powerful castle of Karak in the Outre-Jourdain. Karak sat squarely on one of the principal roads connecting Syria to Egypt. It also served as a base for the Christians to raid the pilgrim routes going to Mecca and Medina. Nur al-Din commanded Saladin to bring his Egyptian forces to help with the siege. Saladin at first appeared to obey. He approached to within a day's march of Karak, only to turn around and return to Egypt. In the spring of 1174, Nur al-Din at last lost patience with his disobedient vassal. He prepared to invade Egypt, mobilizing the armies of Aleppo and Damascus and summoning additional forces from Mosul and the Jazeera. A war between the two greatest Muslim warlords of the Middle East appeared imminent, for the Franks, this course of events appeared heaven-sent. Then Saladin got lucky. As a historian, I'm trained to be skeptical of the effects of chance or luck on the past, to always look instead for deeper causes for major events. The outbreak of the First World War, for instance, had little to do with a confused Austrian chauffeur driving the Archduke Franz Ferdinand's car down the wrong street in Sarajevo and suddenly breaking in front of Gavrilo Princip. There were German militarism, French revanchism, Serbian nationalism, Russian imperialism, and the system of great power alliances. Yet, from time to time, I can't help see contingency, fortune, chance, luck, 12th century people might even say Allah or God, reaching out a finger and giving the wheel of history an irresistible push. So it was with Saladin, for just as Nur al-Din was gathering his armies, he suddenly fell ill. Pus-filled abscesses swelled in the Syrian warlord's throat, then spread infection throughout his body. On May 15, 1174, Nur al-Din died in the citadel of Damascus. His son and heir was just 11 years old, and various members of the Zengid dynasty struggled with each other to assert control over the boy. The vast Zengid realm fractured into warring factions. And luck was still not done with Saladin. Just two months after Nur al-Din's death, in July 1174, the formidable King Amalric of Jerusalem, Shirku's old foe, died of dysentery. As with Nur al-Din, Amalric's successor was a young boy, the 13-year-old Baldwin IV. But even worse, Baldwin was seriously ill. The historian William of Tyre had been the boy's tutor, 
When Baldwin was nine, William had noticed a numbness in his right arm and hand. Despite the best efforts of the finest doctors of Jerusalem, the numbness never went away. It proved to be the first signs of leprosy, a disfiguring, incapacitating, ultimately fatal disease. Having a child and a leper as king condemned Jerusalem to many years of political instability. With his two main rivals falling into crisis, immense prospects now opened up before Saladin. In October 1174, ferocious factional fighting among the Zengids forced Damascus to appeal to him for protection. The Kurdish warlord assembled 700 of his finest cavalrymen. He then rushed across the Sinai, snuck past the Frankish fortresses of Montreal and Karak, and entered Damascus. The city and its lands were incorporated into Saladin's expanding empire. Saladin did not just have designs on Nur al-Din's Syrian dominions. He also assumed the dead Zengid warlord's leadership of the Jihad, the counter-crusade against the Franks. After taking Damascus, he wrote two letters to the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, announcing that he was the most effective leader of Sunni Islam, that only he could defeat the infidel Franks. He also made a bold promise. He would reconquer Jerusalem and restore the Dome of the Rock to Islam. Saladin's embrace of jihad came out of a mixture of motives. We cannot discount his own personal devotion. After all, Saladin had been a ten-year-old boy living in Damascus when the armies of Jerusalem and the Second Crusade besieged the city and ignited the spirit of Muslim resistance. He had then passed his youth and young manhood in the court of Nur al-Din. His formative years were therefore spent in a milieu saturated with the values and ideas of the counter-crusade. Yet, in addition to his own personal zeal, there were good political reasons to embrace jihad. By proclaiming himself the champion of holy war, Saladin gained an important ideological edge over his Zengid enemies, as he could claim that taking over all of Syria would reinforce his war against the Franks. Lastly, Jihad buttressed Saladin's legitimacy and strengthened his control over his diverse realm. He was the Kurdish ruler of a Turkic-dominated empire of many ethnicities. The counter-crusade served as the glue binding it all together. Despite Saladin's declared commitment to the counter-crusade, his main enemies for much of the decade following his seizure of Damascus were the Zengids. As Steve Tibble points out, ironically, the majority of Saladin's enemies, the majority of the states he attacked, and the majority of the lands his troops occupied were Muslim rather than Christian. His immediate target was Aleppo. To give himself a free hand, he signed a truce with the Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1175. He then fought and won two major battlefield victories against his Zengid enemies. Yet Aleppo proved too strongly fortified and too determined to resist to fall to Saladin in a single stroke. He was forced to wear down the city gradually through an eight-year-long campaign of blockades, raids, the taking of nearby strongholds, and diplomatic pressure. Saladin's successes in Syria exposed him to new dangers. The Zengids made common cause with the dreaded Syrian assassins, who were themselves worried about Saladin's growing power. In January 1175, a team of assassins infiltrated Saladin's camp while he was campaigning against Aleppo. Fortunately for Saladin, a local emir who had just joined his army recognized the men and alerted the warlord's Mamluks, who managed to cut them down. 
A second attempt in May 1176 was far more dangerous. This time, the assassins managed to enter Saladin's tent. One of them rushed at the warlord and stabbed him with a dagger. Fortunately, because Saladin was on campaign, he was wearing armor. His chainmail hood turned the dagger aside. His bodyguards then brought his assailants down. These two attempts on his life forced Saladin to move directly against the assassin. He besieged the sect's main stronghold of Masya in the forbidding mountains of the Jebel Ansariya. But Masya was a powerful castle and fanatically defended. After a fruitless and costly siege, Saladin negotiated a truce with the assassin. Under the truce's terms, the assassins agreed not to make any further attempts on Saladin or his family. Following his battlefield victories against the Zengids and his neutralization of the assassins, Saladin felt confident that he had gained the upper hand in Syria. He returned to Egypt and there turned his attention to other pressing matters. By proclaiming himself the champion of the Holy War, he had created enormous expectations among his subjects, his followers, and other Muslim potentates that he would take the fight to the infidel Franks. His prestige and legitimacy depended on meeting these expectations. In the fall of 1177, Saladin spotted an opportunity to do just that. Most of the field army of Jerusalem had gone north to help the forces of Antioch besiege the Muslim fortress of Harib. Moreover, the kingdom's leadership appeared weak. King Baldwin IV was just 16 and fully in the throes of his leprosy. Saladin quickly gathered his army. Its core consisted of his Egyptian askar of 8,000 professional cavalrymen. They included his elite bodyguard of 1,000 troopers who, according to William of Tyre, wore over their breastplates silk robes in yellow, Saladin's personal color. The Askar was supplemented by huge numbers of Turkic, Bedouin, and Berber mercenaries bought by Egypt's wealth. All in all, according to the best estimates, Saladin's army was 24,000 strong. When Saladin's army crossed the frontier into the kingdom of Jerusalem, its size convinced many Franks that the Muslim warlord was bent on conquest. However, Saladin had not brought any siege equipment or specialist troops with him. He was mounting a massive raid meant to erode Jerusalem's defenses and uphold his status as the champion of the Holy War. Saladin's troops flooded the countryside, burning, looting, killing any peasants too slow to flee to safety. Yet, in his first major challenge against the Kingdom of Jerusalem, Saladin seriously underestimated the determination and fighting prowess of the Franks. Despite his youth and his illness, Baldwin proved to be a courageous and redoubtable warrior king. He rushed to Ascalon, the great stronghold on the Egyptian frontier, and summoned every man who could bear arms to join him. Among those who answered the king's call was one of the most colorful and controversial figures in the entire history of the Crusader states. Reynald de Châtillon. The scion of a Burgundian noble family, Reynald had come to the east as a mercenary knight and was present when Baldwin III took Ascalon from the Egyptians. In 1153, he married Princess Constance of Antioch and so became the ruler of the principality. Leading Antioch's forces, Reynald acquired a reputation among the Muslims as a fearsomely effective and utterly ruthless commander. In November 1161, however, Reynald was captured by his enemies. 
he spent the next 15 years languishing in the dungeons of Aleppo. Released following payment of an enormous ransom, Reynald made a second advantageous marriage, Constance having died while he was imprisoned to the heiress of the great fief of Outre-Jordan. His time in captivity only deepened his hatred of Muslims. Reynald de Châtillon would become one of Saladin's most inveterate enemies and a major protagonist in the events leading up to the Battle of Hattin. In addition to Reynald de Châtillon, Baldwin received two further reinforcements. The first was the Templar Grand Master and a hundred knight brothers from the Order's fortress at Gaza. With them, the king commanded a little under 500 knights, perhaps the same number of turcopoles and other light-armed cavalry, and a few thousand infantry, a force outnumbered many times over by Saladin's host. So the second reinforcement was doubly welcome, the True Cross, a fragment of the very crucifix on which Christ himself had died. The holiest relic in the kingdom of Jerusalem, it was believed to bring victory whenever it was born into battle. Ignoring Baldwin's contemptible little army, Saladin swept past Ascalon and drove deeper into the kingdom. Along the way, he unleashed his mercenaries to maraud and devastate the countryside in a wide radius. Baldwin set out in pursuit. Because the coastal plain north of Ascalon was blanketed by prowling enemy horsemen, his army adopted the fighting march formation from the beginning. It was extraordinarily difficult for the Franks to surprise a swifter, nimbler Turkic coast. Baldwin managed to do so. On November 25, 1177, he caught Saladin near a hill called Montgisar, eight kilometers southeast of Ramla. At the unexpected appearance of the Franks, Saladin frantically recalled his marauding cavalry. He also hastily shook out his army into battle formation. His troops still vastly outnumbered the enemy. To no avail. What happened next was a demonstration of the brutal force of the Frankish charge. Tactical command of the army of Jerusalem was entrusted to Reynald de Châtillon. He instantly ordered the knights to form up and charge, aiming for the cluster of yellow banners that marked where Saladin and his bodyguards stood in the middle of the Askar of Egypt. As the army's elite shock troops, the Templars took the lead. They lanced into the enemy, followed by the rest of the knights, then the Turkopoles, sergeants, and squires. The Askar was smashed apart. Hundreds of Saladin's best troopers fell instantly. The rest spurred their mounts into headlong flight. The Templars hacked their way toward the warlord. One determined knight brother almost reached him before Saladin's Mamluks brought him down. Saladin himself then fled. For the kingdom of Jerusalem, Montgisar was a great victory. It was also costly. One of the few hospitallers who took part, most of the order had gone off to fight in the north, reported that the hospital of Jerusalem treated some 2,000 Christian casualties. But Saladin's army suffered much worse. In addition to the enormous Muslim losses on the battlefield, the survivors were harried mercilessly all the way back to Egypt by Turkopoles, Christian peasants, and nomadic Bedouin. Only a remnant of Saladin's great army ever reached safety. Saladin never forgot Mojizar. He never again underestimated the tenacity or battlefield prowess of the Franks. He also learned more specific lessons. His Askar needed to be improved so that it could better withstand the knights. He poured resources into increasing its size as well as improving its troops' training and equipment. 
the Askar troops would never quite match the Franks in close combat, but the gap would close considerably. The other lesson Saladin learned was that he would need to bring overwhelming strength to bear against the kingdom of Jerusalem. After 1177, he worked to combine and coordinate the two component parts of his empire, Egypt and Syria, into a single war machine. He would use the vast wealth of Egypt to better exploit Syria's deep reserves of superb nomad warriors. The result was that his armies grew ever larger and more formidable, especially during the 1180s. Baldwin IV did his best to exploit the victory of Montgisard by taking the offensive on the eastern borders of his kingdom. His most important move was to begin the construction of the powerful castle of Le Chastelet at Jacob's Ford. A key crossing point on the upper reaches of the Jordan River, Jacob's Ford was also on one of the main routes to Damascus. Today, we think that the Crusader castles mainly served a defensive function. In fact, one of the principal roles of castles was to serve as bases for offensives into enemy territory. Le Chastelet was perfectly positioned for launching deep raids into the Hauran, Damascus's breadbasket. Its garrison of 80 Templar knights and 1,000 other troops, a veritable army by Frankish standards, underlined its aggressive purpose. Saladin immediately recognized the danger posed by Le Chastelet. Still smarting from Montgisard, the warlord first attempted to neutralize this threat to his lands by offering Baldwin 100,000 dinars, a considerable fortune, in exchange for abandoning the castle. Only when the king of Jerusalem turned him down did Saladin resort to military measures. In May 1179, he led his main army from Damascus against Jacob's Ford. In response, King Baldwin brought out the field army of Jerusalem. The Frankish cavalry overran some of the leading elements of the Muslim forces. However, the knights pursued too far, outstripping the protection of their infantry. At Marjayun, they ran into Saladin's main body and were overwhelmed. Unable to mount his horse because of his leprosy, King Baldwin had to be picked up by one of his household knights, then his bodyguards hacked their way out of the fray. The victory at Marjayun emboldened Saladin to attack Le Chastelet directly in August 1179. Although still unfinished, the castle was nevertheless a formidable fortification, defended with fanatical determination by its large garrison. The trademark Muslim tactic in siege warfare was undermining a castle's walls. Saladin brought a full complement of expert sappers from Khorasan and Aleppo. The Frankish crossbowmen on the castle's walls took a heavy toll of besiegers. Nevertheless, the sappers managed to dig beneath and bring down a section of the walls. Saladin's troops then stormed in and overwhelmed the garrison. Saladin treated the survivors who fell into his men's hands with exemplary harshness. The Templars were executed on the spot, standard procedure for Saladin but he also meted out the same fate to the Frankish archers as punishment for the damage they had inflicted on the Muslim troops. All the other prisoners were sold into slavery. The Muslim army then demolished the half-completed castle. Today, Le Chastelet at Jacob's Ford is a remarkable archaeological site that reveals the grim brutalities of crusading warfare. The Israeli archaeologist Yossi Nagar found five skeletons in the ruins of one of the castle's buildings. 
there were members of the castle garrison who had retreated inside to make a last stand. The remains were surrounded by arrowheads, suggesting that the Muslim troops had poured arrows into the building at very close range, then rushed inside to finish the Franks off in hand-to-hand combat. Three of the skeletons had arrow wounds, including one who had been repeatedly hit in the neck, presumably by archers aiming below a helmet. Two skeletons bore sword or axe wounds. One Frank's end was particularly savage. His arm was cut off at the elbow. Because no trace of the lower arm was ever found inside the building, the soldier presumably had it severed by a massive sword or axe blow before he retreated there. His lower jaw was chopped in two, and there are signs of a glancing blow to the cheek. But the fatal blow struck the top of the soldier's head and split his skull in half. The victories of Marjayun and Jacob's Ford prompted Saladin to make a decisive shift in strategy. Beginning in 1180, he adopted a two-track approach. While he continued his campaign to take the Zengid stronghold of Aleppo, he also launched annual invasions of the Kingdom of Jerusalem by his increasingly powerful armies. The events of 1182 revealed the results of Saladin's new strategy. At the beginning of the campaigning season, Saladin led his Egyptian army to besiege the fortress of Karak. King Baldwin was now entering the terminal stages of his leprosy. Nevertheless, with a fortitude that we can scarcely imagine, he took the field with the army of Jerusalem and marched to the relief of the beleaguered stronghold. Rather than fight a pitched battle, Saladin proceeded north to Galilee. There, reinforcements from his Syrian domains brought his strength up to 20,000 men. This enormous host took the town of Baisan, then attacked the castle of Le Forbelet. Baldwin rushed there with his army, challenged Saladin's forces, and won a hard-fought victory within sight of the castle. Yet Saladin simply shrugged off this defeat, raising more troops in Syria to replace his losses. In August 1182, he attempted something unprecedented, a coordinated attack on the port of Beirut with his Egyptian navy and his Syrian army. With all of his characteristic energy and determination, Baldwin responded by requisitioning every ship in the harbors of Acre and Tyre, filling these vessels with his troops, then sending them to Beirut. At the approach of this ragtag fleet, the Egyptian ships fled without a fight, and Saladin was compelled to retreat. In 1182, Saladin had failed to take any part of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Even worse, he had suffered a battlefield defeat at Le Forbele. But if we look closer, we can see that his efforts were not entirely fruitless. The Kurdish warlords' armies had rampaged across wide areas of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, inflicting losses on the Frankish troops, degrading frontier defenses, and devastating rural communities. More importantly, Saladin revealed that the resources at his command had become overwhelming. The first steps had been taken on the road that would end at the Horns of Hattin.